You're listening to Messy Jesus Business, a podcast about radical gospel living. Hi, everyone. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, a writer, spiritual director, and jail minister living in Chicago. Welcome to The Mess. At Messy Jesus Business, we explore how the mess of radical gospel living brings disciples into a life of struggle as we advocate for social justice, live simply, serve others, practice contemplation, and live in community. And now, on to our guest. Sister Emily Tekolsti is a Sister of Providence of St. Mary of the Woods, Indiana, and a grassroots mobilization coordinator at Network Lobby for Catholic Social Justice. Originally from the Indianapolis area, she lived in the Indianapolis Catholic Worker community for three years before joining her congregation. She currently lives in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area and organizes advocates in Illinois, Indiana, Kentucky, Missouri, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. In this episode of Messy Jesus Business, we talk about justice, what it is, and why systemic change is so complicated. We also talk about the work we can all do to achieve justice and bring about change. We discuss how alternative models of community, like nonviolent anarchist movements of resistance, can be in conversation with those working for justice and change within established systems. And we explore the mess of staying in relationship and loving those with whom we disagree. Enjoy! Hi, Sister Emily. Welcome to Messy Jesus Business. Thanks, Sister Julia. So glad to be here. Yeah, uh, really fun to ask you some formal questions when I think about all the the ways I know you and talk to you. So I'm just going to jump right into the story of Sister Emily and ask you, um, how did you become so passionate about justice and social change? Hmm. And... (laughs) And now you're working at Network in Washington, D.C., and you're the grassroots mobilizer there. So, like, if you think back to yourself even 10 or 15 years ago, you know, are you surprised that you're in this place? And, like, how did this all happen? That's a great question. Um, Probably 15 years ago, yeah, I'd definitely be surprised. 10 years ago, maybe not so much. I really was introduced in a real way to issues of justice as a student at Xavier University in Cincinnati. So good old Jesuit school. Uh, Freshman year, I I had come from a suburban Indianapolis. I went to Catholic high school, was really involved in uh, church things. And I knew I wanted to get more into service. I have vague memories of when I was in high school being honored for doing service, but it never really felt like service to me. It was, you know, stuff in the church in the same community that I had grown up in, which I I recognize as a form of service, right? But it's comfort zone service. And I knew I wanted to get beyond that comfort zone. And so I just signed up as a freshman for a couple of different uh, opportunities for service. Um, And one of those was this program designed as get to know the city of Cincinnati through service. And so you go to uh, different service sites every week and you would go and and just do a project there for the for the one day. Um, And then you'd go to a different place the next week. Uh, It was second semester, though, that it really uh, switched. I call it the bait and switch that they pulled on me uh, (laughs) that, that they uh, switched to get the get to know the city of Cincinnati through justice. And it really was in that semester that I started to see all of the injustices in the world in a, in a real way. And I, I don't know that I can name too many of the specific places that we went to or, or topics that we talked about, but I just remember week after week getting so, uh, so much more frustrated by uh, what I was seeing and what I was learning about and really just kind of getting mad at the world. And it just so happened that for that semester, they had a group of, of people leading the, the program that had just come back from a service learning semester 
in uh, the Over the Rhine neighborhood of Cincinnati. And so this is a program they ran every fall and several friends and I started exploring it and some other people. And so I was one of seven students the next semester that did this program. And so four classes specifically designed to focus on justice issues. We had a history class on the African-American struggle for equality. We had community building and urban change uh, as a sociology, social work, political science kind of cross-taught class. That was really what, what drove me into studying sociology. I loved that class. Mm. Uh, was that your major? It was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I didn't well, decide until after that point. Okay, yeah. It's interesting because it sounds like really what happened is um, the combination of academia as well as experiential learning, right? Service learning, as mm -hmm. it's sometimes called in, in, um, in the education field, was impactful. It was transformative for you. And it kind of like yeah. ignited this fire. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, yeah. that's a great success story. Go Jesuits. <laughs> they should be proud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, was there s certain things that you were learning or like encountering during that time that in particular kind of like captured you or? I mean, I think really it was it was everything. And and during my time in school, I really was very much in the information gathering uh, stage for for a significant portion of mm -hmm. my time in school. So uh, my theology classes seemed to overlap with the other classes that I was taking. In many ways, I ended up with a peace studies minor and a gender diversity studies minor. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of overlap in in those areas with sociology. And really, I just wanted to soak it all up. So it was the broad spectrum of the ways that our society is harming people, that is harming the natural world. Everything was like, let me dig deeper into this. Let me dig deeper into that. Mm. Um, I, I ended up in, in sustainability for a while, in food justice issues for a while, in racial justice issues for a while. Um, did some anti-death penalty stuff, um, kind of just the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And I can look at it certainly now, and I probably had this intuitive sense of it then, even in my early days, but but looking at it now and seeing it's all woven together. Like you can't separate any of that out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, one of the things I really appreciate about you is how you do seem to have this great understanding about the complexities of social change and how like it tangled up injustices are with each other. And so like, because people are redlined into neighborhoods that are poor, then that means there's health problems, there's safety problems, there's criminal justice problems, there's food justice problems. Like, like you know, like no issue stands by itself. And yeah, so it makes a lot of sense that you ended up now at Network, which is working on the policy level. I mean, when I just think about the fact that you understand the systemic changes. Yeah. So now you're Sister of Providence, St. Mary of the Woods, and you're working at Network in Washington, D.C., which is a Catholic social justice lobby founded by Catholic sisters. And you're one of the Catholic sisters on staff. So what does it mean to be a sister doing this work advocating for social change? That's a really interesting question. Um, and I think there's some tension around what it, what is it that it means, right? Because we come from a tradition that has traditionally had this really hierarchical set apart kind of approach to religious vocations, certainly in the, in the priesthood to a different degree, or maybe less so for those uh, called to religious life. And Vatican II really made clear that that it is the priesthood of all the people, that all people are called to holiness. But you still have these cultural remnants of looking up to people. I had a conversation multiple times, actually, with an uncle who's made comments about, you know, you should pray for me or you have a direct line to God and I don't or you're holier than I am. And I'm just like, that's none of that is true, right? Mm -hmm. None of that is true. I liken it to Dorothy Day's quote, don't call me a saint. I don't want to be dismissed that easily, right? Mm -hmm. it, mm -hmm. We're all called to holiness. We're all called to prophetic action. We're all called to the work of justice. It's just the way it looks in my life is is different, perhaps, than the way it looks in somebody else's life. But that's true for all of the sisters in my community too, mm -hmm. right? The way it looks in my life as Emily is different than the way it looks in your life as Julia, even though we're both sisters. So there are some similarities and there are some differences. 
Um, and I think the same is true whether you're in religious life or not. But but there is that reality of people respond to the sister title. My counterpart at work, Catherine, is, is an organizer as well, um, basically the same job, and she keeps trying to use me. She's She's not Catholic, and I hope she's okay with me sharing this. But she's like, I don't understand this pedestal people put you sisters on. She's like, you're wonderful. I love you, but I don't understand the pedestal. And I'm like, yeah, I get it, right? Like, what is that? And and so are we using that for good? Should we dismantle it? That kind of sense of, of holiness, or are we using it? And by using it, even if it's for a good purpose, are we thereby reinforcing it? There's there's a lot of messiness in, in <laughs> questions. So you don't have a clear answer about what it means to be a sister doing this work? Is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I guess not. Um, <laughs> no, I'll tell you a story. My When I was a postulant in my first year uh, in my community, I was working with my postulant director. And at one point she just looks at me and says, you know, it it's clear, it seems clear that you are called to the work of justice. And the question is, is that call for you compatible with life as a sister of Providence? Mm-hmm. And I mean, I was drawn to the sisters of Providence because of the justice work I saw sisters doing, because we talk about our charism in terms of uh, works of love, mercy, and justice. We've got people doing all sorts of amazing work in the justice realm. So it's not that justice isn't compatible with being a sister of Providence. It's just the question was in my in my life is that where the call or do the calls overlap in that way i think that that for me it's turned out to be that way because the community and this there's this oh, oh my gosh the the newer members the younger members all the members of my community are wonderful but the the newer members there's just this this really special spirit among so many of us and we Oh my gosh, I just am so privileged to to walk alongside so many of them, to be friends with them. Um, and so that's something that nourishes me in, in this work for justice. Mm. That's a lovely way to think about the questions about over what overlaps, you know, and, and how does one lifestyle sort of support your passion and do, are they complementary and do they go together? I think that makes a lot mm-hmm. of sense. And that's a good way to think about a lot of questions of discernment and vocation. So Sister Emily, what is justice? You know, actually, I think, I mean, justice is still a language that I use, but I, in in my thought process, I'm moving away from clarity around justice and into a space of, of liberation. That it really, the questions that I'm asking are about how are we liberating each other to full freedom? And when we talk about social justice, that is, the the structures that is the anti-oppression work the systemic justice um, justice the the addressing unraveling dismantling systemic racism all of those sorts of things there are ways that 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 oppression manifests even in those groups of people we might consider the oppressors in any given situation i'm gonna go out on a limb here and quote karl marx but he says that 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 capitalism, that this great divide between the capitalists and the proletariat or the laborers, it harms everybody. It harms even the capitalists because they themselves are separated from the society. They're separated from the fruits of their labor in similar ways to those who labor, the the proletariat are separated from their, the results of their labor because it's uh, you know, it's for someone else, it's wage labor, it's hourly labor, it's not about producing this product that, you know, you really get to work from one end to the other. And I think there's 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 something there. I do like the idea of working in teams, right? That, you know, I can do this part and you can do that part. But I do think that, you know, you think about like the, the assembly line really as, as the vision of that. Like if you're on an assembly line, you're just doing what you're told and it's because you're told to do it and you don't have any say in the whole picture. I think there's something to, in varying ways, building towards a world that we co-create together. Mm. Um, that, that that's part of what Marx is addressing, even though that's not how he would have seen it. Um, mm-hmm. That's much more of a Wendell Berry version of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but that it speaks to the same thing. And the other thing is, in terms of capitalism harming everybody, uh, we talk about the question of inequality and extreme inequality. And the data shows that the more unequal the society, 
the worse off everybody is. In a more unequal society, the wealthiest people are still worse off in terms of health indicators, all sorts of things, happiness indicators. They're worse off than the wealthiest people in a more equal society. Everybody is better in a more equal society. And we live in this society of just rampant runaway inequality. Mm. And that's harming everybody. Mm. Yeah. I feel like you're describing a monster. <laughs> like how do we, or something. <laughs> Like just really a big, big mess. And, you know, and it's true because like these, the inequalities, the injustices in our society are uh, economic as well as racial, as well as gender, as well as environmental. I mean, it's, it's so complicated. And I really appreciate what you're saying about really pursuing justice is about pursuing liberation, because I think that. And, and recognizing that our liberation, our freedom is caught up with one another. That just makes me think so much of Desmond Tutu's teachings about Ubuntu, about like, I will be more free when you are more free, right? As he writes about in his books um, regarding the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And so it's it's this great understanding of like, if I am better, you are better and, and so on. But how how do we like do this? <laughs> when it's so big and complicated mm-hmm. right and and mm-hmm. I guess maybe I mean we can go I want to come back to that question because that seems really important and I know we can break it down a bit first though will you tell me what network is for any anyone who doesn't know yeah so networks a federal lobby organization focused on principles of catholic social justice and particularly uh economic justice racial justice uh, issues, um, which so often overlap, right? And so we work in terms of influencing federal policy. And we do that in multiple ways. The most direct way is that we have a government relations team that does the direct lobbying that that follows and monitors the policies on that level. And the communications team helps us to communicate in all of its many facets. They do just amazing, wonderful work. Of course, the, the development team and the executive team that support these other functions. And then my team's the grassroots mobilization team. So we work with the field, with the people who are interested in, in supporting the work. We have advocates teams in a number of different states and multiple in some states and other individuals who we're, who we work with in other areas. And we have all sorts of policy updates that we can help provide. Uh, we help people to write letters to the editor. We organize lobby visits with with the grassroots, with the field, what, with the constituents, right? Because those are the people that, that our, our lawmakers want to hear from. They're the people that vote them into office. Uh, they have the on the ground information about how policies are impacting the communities. Um, and so we work with them and support them in all those many different ways in terms of learning about the issues, learning about the process, all of those things. Yeah. Um, I love it. Yeah. It's yeah. a privilege to work with such great people. It, for example, just a few weeks ago, you arranged, what do you call that? A lobbying visit meeting yeah. between myself and a few other Catholic sisters here in Illinois with um, Senator Durbin's staff. And that was a thrill and an honor for me to talk to his staff and to advocate for um, a few different immigration policies. Yeah. You know, what's so powerful about that is that because it was a constituent that reached out and it was on an issue that, that Senator Durbin is, is really active on, but because it was constituents, our government relations team was our, our issue expert was able to join the meeting, but we met with the DC issue experts, like the top people. <laughs> you guys were our like big success story in terms of like meeting with the people who are actively forming and shaping the policy. Wow. And so that's that's really that matters, right? Yeah. That's that's significant. And that's so cool too to think about. I mean, in this time of zoom that I got to zoom to these these high-powered officials in DC and just be like hey what are you doing for the children on the border seriously now (laughs) and they heard me (laughs) and it worked yeah yeah it was really an honor yeah and and so congratulations on all the awesome work that you're doing that's it's amazing and I mean I was familiar with network before I became a Catholic sister and I've been you know a fan of its work and and following it for a long time. So I think what what I'm hearing you describe too is sort of like this systemic way of attacking the monster of injustice. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, like you're right. Like as one team is, is dismantling policies that are unfair and working on that and building those relationships and, and getting Intel <laughs> even about, about what sort of um, policy changes are being proposed. Others are doing education and others are building the networks across the country and and educating constituents and empowering them to advocate. Yeah. So what is working for in DC and, you know, working for, against all these injustices and working for a network? What has this taught you about power? Mm, yeah, great question. So I have a, several organizer friends who have, have taught me a little bit along the way, and this has really enabled me to, to put this into practice. So I'm leaning on the wisdom of so many people, whether they formally trained me or were just informal relationships that you know as they did their work and reflected with me i picked up stuff along the way in the space of organizing we think about power as not a bad thing there's the the sense that power corrupts but it doesn't have to and it's just how we use and express that power power is simply the ability to get things done mm. right the ability to have an impact and so we think about power in organizing spaces as being collective and shared that mm. we together are powerful. And maybe a corporation has more power in some ways, but we together have power as well. And so how are we using that power together? And sometimes we team up with the power of a corporation that, that has you know money and structure behind it. And sometimes we're working against that power, depending on, on what is just, what is good for for everybody. Yeah. So we have more power together and we, the people are busy, <laughs> distracted, <laughs> yeah. maybe even discouraged or like cynical that we can actually have an impact. Yeah. What words of encouragement do you have for us people who, so we can unite and use our power well for good? I think the best analogy I ever heard about this was that, that organizing the work of justice is like choral singing mm. that choirs together can sustain a note for ridiculously long amounts of time as long as they stagger their breaths mm. but if you don't stagger your breath if you don't take a break when you need it even early on when you need it then you're running out of breath and if everybody runs out of breath at the same time the note collapses mm. And so I think the importance, what that says to me is the importance of taking breaks and also in, in some ways, the importance of, of collaboration, which, which I think is some, in some ways, a different analogy. We are, we are whole people and we are not machine robots. Uh, we are not uh, uh, movement robots. We are not people who can just keep going and, and drive ourselves into the ground. And, and that sense of self-care is so important. And it makes me think too, I mean, this, this connects to the spirituality of like, we are embodied spirits and, and how mm -hmm. to have a healthy spirituality, a person needs to really be self-aware and really what, what a life of spiritual living, a spiritual life is really about deepening and broadening our spiritual awareness, right. And our self-awareness throughout the United States. And I don't even know where all our message Jesus business listeners are, but there could be some in other countries. And I'm, I'm curious what issues you think we need to be paying attention to those of us that are scattered and care and are devoted and, and want to dismantle the injustices. There are definitely a lot of issues that we can focus on. Um, certainly you mentioned already immigration, what's going on at the border, the, the inhumanitarian response that our nation has had for years and continues to struggle with to people seeking asylum from from circumstances that our nation created in Central America and, and in Mexico, right? This is, these are not just things that sprung out of nowhere. There's the immigration stuff that everybody hears a lot about. There's, there's racism um, and uh, the Black Lives Matter movement that um, certainly has has made a lot of really significant change in our nation. And I think those things are, are really, really important. And the piece of Black Lives Matter that I think often gets forgotten, um, not by Black Lives Matter organizers, but by the general public as they're responding to the Black Lives Matter movement, is this systemic oppression, the systemic devaluing of Black lives in, in the way that we 
have built our system and the way that our, our system, economic, social, political system still operates today. So I've been uh, really privileged over the past few months to be working on this uh, workshop that we're going to release in sometime in the future on looking at the tax code. And the tax code is racist and sexist. And there are specific policies that directly benefit white folks. And there are specific policies that disproportionately harm black folks and other people of color. And there's a number of reasons for that. And usually it's not written as this is good for white folks and this is bad for black folks. But because our nation is founded on this history of, of slavery and a number of other policies that have created white wealth mm -hmm. at the expense of black folks, we have this situation in which by privileging wealth in the tax code, we are inherently privileging white folks. And that's what our tax code does, is it privileges wealth, it privileges savings, it privileges income earned through wealth over income earned through labor. Wow. And that harms people, not just black, indigenous, and other communities of color, but it, it harms poor white folks too. And so we have this space in which the rich people have all of it, right? Yeah. They have everything that, that our society has in terms of material wealth. They pit the poor in our nation against the poor in our nation, right? This is where you get this, you know, who are the workers in the United States? Mm. We are the workers party or we are the people, we, we are pro worker. Well, what does that mean when you have white folks who are losing their jobs because of changes in the economy and they are being turned against the immigrant as the immigrant is stealing your job the immigrant isn't stealing your job the greedy corporations who don't want to pay living wages and who don't want to pay their taxes are stealing your job yeah in in the past week in the past week the top 10 wealth holders in our nation in the course of one day got like three billion dollars richer wow let me find that exact statistic 10 people in the world now own 1.23 trillion dollars in wealth trillion with a t 10 that people 10 people that is a thousand <laughs> billions <laughs> I can't Billion is a thousand millions. Oh. 10 people own $1.23 trillion in wealth. In one day alone this past week, those 10 people became $30 billion richer than they were the day before. 30 billion in one day. Oh my goodness. Is that, and, that's be, and so the tax code allows this to persist. Yes, and the tax code not only allows it, but there are certain provisions in the tax code that encourage it. Wow. In the, the late 90s, there was a change to the way they required corporate executive pay that essentially just in incentivized corporations to pay executives in ways that just exploded their wealth. And meanwhile, the poor are getting poorer. And we can't afford to house people. We yeah. can't afford to feed people. Yeah. The lines for food and, and healthcare and support are just getting longer and longer and more and more people are getting kicked out of their homes. Oh my goodness. And as Catholic sisters, I know, I mean, I, <laughs> I think we're on the same page. Like we understand this as social sin because we believe that greed is sin and we believe that the poor deserve to be treated well and they in fact deserve to have some of the wealth. The universal destination of goods is what Catholic social teaching would talk about it as. St. Basil the Great says, and I think many people, I, I've known this quote for a while, I really uh, have looked to it, the, the bread in your cupboard belongs to the hungry, the coat unused in your closet belongs to the one who needs it, the shoes rotting in your closet belong to the one who has no shoes, the money which you hoard up belongs to the poor. Mm. What I didn't know until I just looked it up recently is the quote actually starts with this line. When someone steals another's clothes, we call them a thief. Should we not give the same name to one who could clothe the naked and does not? 
that makes me want to cry <laughs> and run up to my bedroom and start distributing my clothes. <laughs> I mean, you use most of your clothes, right? We're talking about right. who have billions of dollars in wealth right. for one person. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously the problem is not really clothing. <laughs> like there is an abundance of clothing. <laughs> the clothing merchants are doing a great job of producing clothes and, and getting it out cheaply. The real problem is that they're doing that clothing manufacturing in sweatshops. So the people distributing it through Amazon are paid ridiculously low amounts of money and have to pee in plastic bottles. Gosh. Right. And then, and, and it's wasteful too. I mean, anyway, yeah. <laughs> I might need, <laughs> we could go I on. The environmental piece of it too. <laughs> oh, so I'm going to bring us back to that big question from earlier. What can we do? Certainly I love and support uh, opportunities to offer hospitality to folks. Um, I have a I lived in a Catholic worker community but before joining the Sisters of Providence. So, uh, and it was just so meaningful, uh, those relationships that I built there. Um, and, and really the work of network is similarly formed by that space of encounter. Pope Francis has been clear that we are called to encounter. The work that we do in our advocacy is really informed by encounter, the storytelling and connecting the, the power mongers of Congress with the people who are impacted by the decisions that they make. Building those relationships, um, connecting to those stories, I think is, is an important part of that advocacy work. But we talk about advocacy as kind of threefold, and they, these are all mutually informing framework pieces. Um, but we talk about it as educating, organizing, and lobbying. So lobbying is clear. It's the talking to the decision makers, educating them on the issues, uh, really encouraging them to take a certain position. Educating is also kind of clear that it can be in formal settings or informal settings um, to talk about what's the reality of our world, what's the reality of the systems, of the lives of people, uh, those sorts of things. Organizing is really about that power building, that collective power building. So that's kind of the theoretical framework that we operate in, but I think everybody's called to a little bit different mm -hmm. of a way of interacting with this. Some people are called more to the charity side. Some people are called more to the justice side. I, I really, I think that sense of encounter means that we have to be called to both. Mm. Um, but some people might, their emphasis might be a little bit different, mm -hmm. right? So back uh, to the self-awareness again, kind of and discernment and knowing oneself and vocation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it might shift at any point in your life, right? For sure. Oh yeah. Like, I was totally like, motivated and eager to be at like any protest <laughs> practically when I was in my twenties. And now that I'm nearly 40, I'm sort of like, oh, okay, go ahead. <laughs> I'm going to read and I'm going to share the news through media. <laughs> uh -huh. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 Okay. We all bring our skills. And so, I mean, showing up to protests is valuable. It makes you visible. Having these conversations is valuable. It makes people think about things differently and it encourages them. Building spaces of encounter, of, of nourishment, you know, things like retreat ministry or food ministry, being able to cook really well. There's a, an article that I really like the title of called Everyone Wants a Revolution, but no one wants to do the dishes. <laughs> Luckily, my housemate loves to do the dishes, so oh, that works God. out really well for me. Um, <laughs> but, um, but that's really the, I mean, that's the beauty of community is that we all bring our gifts uh, yeah. to the table. And yeah. uh, so protesting matters, having conversations, having conversations with the people who maybe disagree with you or don't understand the, the challenges that, that some people face in our nation, in our world. I think those are, are really, really important. That's, that's the really hard work is those, having those transformative conversations. It takes time, it takes relationship, it takes some degree of inner peace that I'm not sure I have most of the time. Mm -hmm. um, that sense of patience. There's the direct lobbying, there's there's writing letters to the editor. If you want to get more involved with Network, um, feel free to, to uh, reach out. Uh, our website is networklobby.org um, or send an email to info at networklobby.org and it'll, uh, we'll connect you to the right person uh, to get more involved. For anybody listening, we can talk more about what are, what are your interests, what are your gifts, 
what are your talents and, and where could that be best put to use? Awesome. Awesome. I love, I love all the, the menu <laughs> of options you've laid out for us. There's yeah. And it does make it seem like, oh, there's something possible there. I can cook. I can wash some dishes and I'm willing to meet with senators. <laughs> yeah. I'm doing Yeah. That's great. So, you know, one of the things I'm con- um, conscious of Emily in your story is that, yeah, as you mentioned, you lived in a Catholic worker house for a while and Dorothy Day, um, as I understand, never actually voted, um, right? And and there's sort of this anarchy stuff mixed into the Catholic worker movement. And even in the Black Lives Matter movement and some of the more recent movements for social justice, like the mutual aid um, movements, there's there tends to be this this concept of like resisting the structures by that you that are oppressive by not even participating in them right and so i guess but here you are now you're working <laughs> through the system of democracy and working working for social change in this way so i guess i wonder um what from your point of view what do anarchists need to understand about policy and democracy and advocacy. What is anarchy? Yeah, what is it? Karl Marx was an anarchist, but he was also a communitarian, right? He was all about community. And in our religious communities, we in various degrees operate on some form of a consensus model, whether it be full consensus or not, there are, there's, there's value in those spaces. and I think that is an alternative model that that democracy could really learn from, at least at least our iteration of democracy, right? Yeah, um, it's so polarized and and so just entrenched in I'm right, you're wrong, I'm good, you're bad, like you know the the principle from Matilda. Talking across those divides can bring us closer together, but it requ- it it's it's a complex dynamic when you're in this massive nation of over 300 million people mm-hmm. uh, and so i think there's something to be said for those small pockets those small enclaves who are living in a much more communitarian model a much more consensus driven model that that we can all learn from that just to clarify make sure i'm getting this you're encouraging the continued existence of alternative models with within the structures of democracy. Yeah, I think that's an okay way of saying it. Okay. And if those alternative models are anarchist in nonviolent communitarian type of ways, then they actually are like, should be in conversation with democracy because they're teaching something like they, they have, they're showing something to us about other ways of existence. Yeah. So tell me more about how these alternative movements and organizations can be in conversation with the work that you're doing at the policy level. Well, I think the the first thing is, if we're building a world of justice, we have to live that in our own lives. We can't be living patterns and practices that we're opposing on a systemic level. Um, that That if we want to say, that we should have a reasonable work week we can't be overworking ourselves and not resting and so i think that's that's um certainly one piece of it is is that living the model that we want to see more broadly i think that real community is lived out on a smaller level and that i think of it like like i think um it's Adrienne Marie Brown writes about, emer- she has this book, Emergent Strategy. And one of the pieces of that is kind of this fractal level that, that everything breaks down into smaller pieces. You, you know, your atoms are the building blocks of society, which fits really well with actually with Catholic social teaching and like the family is the building block of, of society. That we have to be living anti-paternalistic, anti-authoritarian family structures in order to be living anti-authoritarian uh, social structures. Mm. And so the, it's just like that um, in our religious communities or in our uh, local co-housing uh, communities that all of those things are are models of what gets put together on a on a larger societal level. And we can't live 
an anti-patriarchal national narrative, an anti-oppressive national narrative, if our local living situations are oppressive. Yeah, yeah. So we have to be working locally and advocating globally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's also interrelated. The, the, the maxim that all politics are local mm. uh, is, is another, another framework for that. Mm. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's that, that sense of, mm. you know, what is our theology teaching us? And I know how hard I and so many others have had to work to overcome this theology of we are bad, we are sinful, we are beautiful, we are made in God's image, mm-hmm. and um, I need to be selfless mm. is, a, is another narrative that we have to over overcome. Um, in organizing spaces, we talk about self-interest and building power. You asked earlier about power, building power around shared self-interest. Um, that self-interest is not, it's not about selflessness, but it's also not selfishness. Mm-hmm. That it's that middle line, and I cannot effectively do anything if I'm not aware of what's bringing me into the space, of what's bringing me into the work. So I have to be, I have to understand my own self-interest and, and self-awareness as, as a piece of that. When is it that I need to rest? And, and this is an ongoing journey for all of us throughout our lives is sometimes we overwork ourselves and then we, we take a step back and, and are able to rest for a little bit. But that, that's, that's all part of it. And that liberating theology liberates us from the, this kind of negative self-narrative that I know so many people in my life have been taught or this like perfectionist self-narrative mm-hmm. that, that you are whole and human and that is beautiful and it is not about being perfect and you are loved if you are not perfect. And I think that actually, I even think that that uh, for for white folks that are into the narrative of the American dream and uh, you have to earn everything that you have, I think that comes out of that sense of what is deservedness and that, that human dignity is not inherent, it is earned in the American dream narrative. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and this is in tension with the way that like there's this attitude of entitlement within our culture, especially within white supremacy of like, and that kind of goes back to the tax code and these power struggles of like, oh, if I'm doing all right, I must deserve it. So now I can protect my wealth and I can claim it. No, everything is gift. And you are created to imitate the God whose image you were made in. And our God is a God of sharing and abundance and giving. And Mm -hmm. although we may need to be selfless and surrender for the sake of the common good, right? It's because our liberation is bound up with one another. Christ's death on the cross redeemed us all because the freedom that he gave us from death and from sin was for the whole community. Mm. It was like this collective together. We all were made free. We all are free. And now we get to build up this world where that freedom is felt, huh? Mm -hmm. I like that framing. You start to make me a little nervous because I'm I'm real cautious about that atonement theology stuff. And I thought that was where you were going, but it wasn't. Yeah. Uh, at that, that the redemption on the cross is the redemption of the fear from the fear of death that we are redeemed we are saved from the fear of death yes um, and that that's the freedom that that Christ's death allows us to walk in because we are free we get to share the free the joy the goodness of freedom with others and help everybody be more free Mm-hmm. and and liberate everyone from that oppression we we're this i mean this this is the gift of our salvation so let's live like it mhm Gosh, that's yeah. It reminds me. I, we've been praying in in my local community with "Threatened with Resurrection" by Lilia Esquivel, um, which is, of course, the story uh, in poem form of some folks in uh, Central America and uh, all of the oppression that they experienced, and this idea of of we they have threatened us with resurrection mm-hmm. because they don't know what it is to live, and how glorious it is to be threatened with resurrection. And part of the the prayer for one of the times that we prayed with that was this song, The High Women, by um, a group called High Women, um, which is Brandy Carlisle and a few others. Um, and it tells the story of the mother from Guatemala seeking uh, asylum, seeking sustenance for her family. And the, um, the freedom writer going into Mississippi 
um, and in the wake of uh, in the you know early civil rights movement and and we are still here that they we may have died but we are still here yeah great song check it out <laughs> <laughs> I just recently discovered it and I am in love <laughs> <laughs> thank you Emily this is so fun and there's been so much richness to this conversation I've learned a lot from you and I love I love the way you're making me think about social change and and the complexities of it and but also kind of like the art form of it you know and and how it's like this beautiful way that we get to create new structures and ways of being in the world so in light of all that i'm wondering for you what is discipleship you think of of the disciples as the people who sat at jesus's feet and listened for a few years and then ran away and didn't have a clue what was going on and were afraid and but i also think of the line that that Jesus says, and I forget where this is, um, but that you will do greater things than me. That that Jesus calls us all to go out into the world and to transform the world, because that is what Jesus's ministry was 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 transformation internally, externally, in systems um, and structures, in in systems of oppression and in interpersonal oppression. All of those things were part of Jesus's ministry. And Jesus says to us, you will do greater things than I. Jesus, well, I think it's St. Paul, also says we are the body of Christ, that together, that it really comes down to that, that sense of togetherness, that no one of us can do it on our own. And it's no fun to do it on our own, right? It's <laughs> no fun. Not sustainable either. <laughs> right. Or even impactful. <laughs> right. There's this great story, and I have no idea where I came across it, but there's this great story from one of the leaders in the civil rights movement who would organize these massive events, do just really phenomenal work, get these great things together, and then she'd sit at home and watch them. And someone asked her about it once, and she said, well, I can't march, but I can organize. Wow. And you may not be able to organize, but you can march, and together we will change the world. Woo! <laughs> Amen. <laughs> body of christ a body of christ we all got one different parts to play we're all on the same team and that totally breaks down this competitive uh nature of like you know and it believing the gospel is countercultural because we're all in this together we know our liberation is bound up together even the people that act like they're our enemies are actually our brothers and sisters and we are called to love them and work with them too wow yeah. So yeah, Emily, yeah, sometimes, <laughs> <laughs> right. Easier said than done. <laughs> we know. <laughs> okay. So yeah, all this social change, working for justice, working for liberation, working for freedom for, um, the world where, where there's the flourishing of, of humanity and, and all creation. What is messy about all this? All of it. I think of the line chaos creates community. Um, and even in the beginning, the world was a formless void. And the presence of God in that formlessness of matter, of existence, was able to slowly bring something out of it. And I'm continuously amazed when I go into meetings or conversations like, I don't know what we're going to do about this. I have this question. I don't know what this meeting is going to uh, do and just what emerges out of that space. Um, and sometimes it calls me to rethink what my assumptions were going into that space. And sometimes I didn't even have the slightest idea, but there's something in that space that of, of mutuality of working together that allows the emergence of something new. And so the, I think the messiness is in letting go of the preconceived notions, letting go of the plans and the expectations and the, you know, strict goals and letting things emerge as they as they emerge uh, in community. Um, and I also think it's really messy because we're humans and we're in relationship with people. And sometimes those relationships are hard. And sometimes as much as we try, we cannot figure out what's going wrong in that relationship or how to fix it. And like you said, we're still called to love in those situations. And I know for me, sometimes that's really hard. Amen. Thank you, Emily. Thank you so much.
Thank you so much for all your wisdom and insights and and the ways you've um, deepened my understanding of things like the tax code and why I need to care. <laughs> Thank Thanks for all your work at, at Network and all you're doing to, to build the reign of God through your dedication and, and leadership. Thank you so much. This has been really just a lot of fun. Great. So, I appreciate it. I invite you to join me in this contemplative moment. Sister Emily referenced a passage from the Gospels where Jesus tells his followers that they will do great things. I'd like to share that scripture with you now. If you can, I invite you to close your eyes and breathe deeply as you listen and pray. Notice if certain words or phrases stick out for you. Notice if there's a particular message that God wants you to hear. A reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 11 through 14. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe because of the works themselves. Amen, amen, I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do and will do greater ones than these, because I am going to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name, I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything of me in my name, I will do it. That's it for this episode of Messy Jesus Business. Thanks for listening. Messy Jesus Business is produced and hosted by me, Sister Julia Walsh, and edited by Cherish Bedzinski. You can find us online at MessyJesusBusiness.com and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. If you like what you heard, please be sure to mention our podcast to your friends and followers. And we'd love to have your support via Patreon. From the bottom of our hearts and the middle of the mess, thank you. Messy Jesus Business is produced in partnership with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. You can learn more about our religious community and donate to our mission at www.fspa.org. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, and I'll catch up with you next time. Until then, peace and all good. <laughs>